Um, anyway, it's good to be with you guys again. How many of you, is this your first session? Like you weren't here at all last night? Okay, so we'll take a little bit of time uh, to review. If you want to start in, um, on page 8, uh, the session 2 uh, notes, we'll just pick up and we'll, we'll begin to review uh, here, we're talking about the subject of forgiveness or evangelizing those who wrong us, evangelizing them in the form of being a living embodiment of the grace of the gospel. When I forgive somebody, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm passing on to them the forgiveness that I have received. I'm a living embodiment of the grace and the forgiveness of the gospel to them And that's a part of what it means to evangelize. We saw uh, last night, I evangelize through the words I speak and through the kind of person I am towards uh, people. So to forgive someone who's wronged you is to evangelize them on one level. Uh, We looked at a definition of uh, forgiveness. This is not in the session two notes, but just to to define this, it means to send away sin from between you and the one who sinned against you and to hold that sin against the offender no more and to release or to send away the offender from the prison cell of consequences that they deserve from you as a result of the sins that they have committed against you and then see to positively, actively favor them with blessings that are the opposite of what they do, in fact, uh, deserve. So that's a high calling, and we're called to, to forgive those who have wronged us. As we make our way through this broken world, surrounded by broken people, it's inevitable that we're going to be offended. We're going to be sinned against, probably on some level, if you're married, every day. As one writer said, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. And I love that. That's the only way that a marriage will become a good marriage if both husband and wife are good forgivers of of one another. Uh, So the question is, you know, this is a high calling to forgive others and evangelize them in that way. But the question is, how do I get there? How do I get to the place of forgiveness? I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I don't feel like forgiving. I don't want to forgive, but I'm willing to go on a journey that will lead me to that place of forgiveness. And so there are a total of four steps that we're looking at of forgiveness. And step one is more the journey to the place of forgiveness. And then steps two, three, and four are is the journey through forgiveness. And we spent all of last night in both sessions, and we'll wrap it up in this session looking at step one. If you want to fulfill your calling of forgiving someone of a wrong that they've committed against you, step number one, go to the cross and do some gospel thinking. This will give you perspective, and it will put you in the frame of mind to forgive those who have wronged you. It will literally transport you. We're calling this a 360 around the cross. Go to the foot of the cross, and it's like a spiral escalator. Uh, It will elevate you and move you from the first floor of anger and bitterness to the second floor 
of grace. Go to the cross and do some gospel thinking. Eight thoughts total that you can think at the foot of the cross that will put you in a frame of mind to forgive. Thought number one, Christ has suffered as I am suffering right now and infinitely more so, which means that I am never alone in any pain. Step number two, or thought number two, sometimes, apparently, God purposes that those whom he loves deeply be painfully sinned against. I see Christ, the supreme object of the Father's love, and yet I see in God's predestined plan Jesus suffering more horribly than anyone has ever suffered in the history of the world. But I also notice at the foot of the cross that that I'm not just watching a man dying, I'm watching a man trusting. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously all the way to his final breath when he says, Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. So thought number three, here's a third thought. God the Father can be trusted completely on the receiving end of any wrongdoing. Christ trusted the Father completely and implicitly and yes, he died and yes, he was buried but then God raised him from the dead and elevated him to his own right hand and from that position of lordship, honor, glory and authority, Jesus holds our face in his hands in our moments of hurt and says, you can trust my father. Thought number four at the foot of the cross that we can think is that I have committed greater sins against God than any person has ever committed against me. It is at the foot of the cross that I see the magnitude of my sins. I see my sins as being infinitely evil, infinitely evil. When I am at the foot of the cross, I not only observe a man dying, I observe myself killing. I am complicit in the death of Jesus. Jesus was pierced through from my transgressions and crushed under the weight of my iniquities. Uh, Thus, that makes me a violator of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. So I now see the reality of sin. It's deicide. It is murder, the murder of God. I am a murderer of the Son of God. And I now learn something about the true nature of all sin, that the DNA of all sin is the murder of God. That's part of the purpose of the cross, to show us the true nature of our hearts and the true nature of our sin. But in the moment where I make that crushing discovery of the magnitude of my sin, I, as a believer in Jesus, also make this discovery and can think this thought. Thought number five, glory to God, Christ has purchased my forgiveness and my justification at the cross. I am forgiven. I am cleansed of all of my sins, and I am clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus. And so as I see the magnitude of my sins, how great they are, I'm prepared to let God's grace come in in massive portions, and I'm appreciating God's grace, receiving God's grace, awash in the grace of God, and I now have the wherewithal to give that grace to other people who have wronged me. I made a mistake last night. I, I didn't get a conference notebook, so the bar graph that is in your notebook, I, last night I think I was referring to the orange bar. 
Well, it's a gray bar in your notes, so I apologize for that. But in the notes that I sent them, uh, the bar that you see was orange, and the one that doesn't show up was supposed to be blue. So that's why I was talking in color last night uh, when you guys are looking at something that's gray. But I think you guys probably uh, figured that out. It seemed like you did, because you're advanced people. So. <laughs> Um, but anyway, you know, we've got this seven mile high debt that we owe to God that God forgave and the debt that other people owe us is microscopic in comparison to that. And so if we're walking around experiencing God's grace in a seven mile proportion, then we've got grace to cover the one inch sins that people commit against us. But I'm telling you, if you're walking around um, from a position of moral superiority and you're viewing your sins as one inch high and everyone else's as a mile high, you're only experiencing God's grace one inch high. You're never going to have grace to cover other people's sins. And so you want to go deep and seeing the hugeness of your sins, not as an end in itself, because then that'll lead you to a place of condemnation, but in order to dig the grooves, as it were, for God's grace to come in, and now you've got the grace to give to others. You can only give to others what you yourself are receiving from God, so you need some pretty deep grooves for God's grace to come in so that you can dispense that grace freely to other people when they commit sins uh, against you. It is at the foot of the cross. I'm telling you, it's, it's really the only place where you and I can grant true forgiveness to other people from that position at the foot of the cross. Don't try to forgive anywhere else other than at that location. Dave Harvey, in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, tells about a couple, uh, Jeremy and Cindy, And um, Jeremy committed adultery, and when Cindy uh, became aware of that adultery, she was devastated. Her life fell apart. She was filled with anger, uh, anxiety. Her world, as she thought it existed, uh, was all thrown into question. What she thought she knew about God, what she thought she knew about her husband, what she thought she knew about herself was all uh, brought into question, and she found herself in a place of anger and bitterness, as we can understand. Uh, But she ended up in a place of grace and forgiveness, and how did she get there? It was the cross. Look at what she says. She says, over time, like she talks about, I started off really angry, but over time, I began to see my own sinfulness and God's grace and mercy for my sins. It was very hard to look at my own contribution to the breakdown of my marriage. I wanted to just focus on his part and leave the blame there. But God opened my eyes and helped me to see that even as a victim of my husband's sin, I could not claim innocence in my marriage, and certainly I could not claim innocence before a holy God. She goes on to say this, the gospel gave me power to forgive my husband. Christ had died for both of our sins, dying in 
our place, drinking the full cup of God's wrath we deserved for our sins. Through the revelation of this truth, I was humbled and disarmed. We, my husband and I, were more alike than different. And from this standing place, forgiveness flowed. What is that standing place? It's the standing place at the foot of the cross where everyone is equal. And she sees the magnitude of her sin and she sees the grace of God toward her and she says, I just, I found that from that standing place, forgiveness just started to flow from me. That's the power of this journey around the cross. Well, we come... um, this morning to thought number six, and we won't spend a lot of time here, but there's a sixth thought that we can think at the foot of the cross, and that is that I am purchased and owned by God, and now I live to serve his purposes and not mine. You know, when you're at the foot of the cross, let me say that again uh, so you can fill in these blanks. I am purchased at the foot of the cross. We can observe this to be true. I am purchased and owned by God And now I live to serve his purposes and not mine. Uh, When Christ was dying on the cross, he wasn't just purchasing our forgiveness and our justification and our redemption. He was purchasing us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. He says that to Christians, for you have been bought with a price. And therefore, here's what your life is to be all about, glorifying God in your body. You're not your own. At the foot of the cross, I discover that I'm no longer my own. I've been bought, and therefore, I am now the property of God, the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a liberating truth. Um, This is not just something to remind yourself of when you're wronged. Get up in the morning and remind yourself of this. I've been bought by Jesus. He's bought all of my rights. He's bought my life, every part of my being. I'm now owned and operated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what my life is to be all about today. Think for a moment about the things that make you angry. What are the things that make you angry? And just think back over this week of something that made you angry. Okay, you have it in mind? All right, here's my question for you. In that moment of anger, were you really righteously indignant because a sin against God had been committed? Or were you angry merely because somebody did something that was at cross purposes with your selfish agenda? When I look at my moments of anger... Most of them, by far. I'm angry not because someone has sinned against a righteous and holy God. I'm offended and I'm angry because someone has just done something at cross purposes with my selfish agenda. And why would that happen? That would happen because in that moment I'm living for myself and I'm not realizing that I've been purchased by Jesus and I'm owned and operated by him. Just imagine this scenario. 
Um, a man gets up on a Saturday morning and he's got his chips and salsa and he's like, I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to relax. I've worked hard all week. I'm going to watch three collegiate football games today from nine o'clock till five. Uh, I'm just going to watch football all day. So he's enjoying the games and lo and behold, his wife comes in with a honeydew list and she wants to give it to her husband and ask him if he can do something And she has the gall to approach him on a critical third down play. (laughs) Rather than during a commercial. Um, And so the husband just, he's he's irritated. um, And he's upset. And he's feeling wronged by her. And so he might say, well, I've been to the advanced conference, and yeah, I need to forgive. So Lord, give me the grace to forgive my wife. But is she really sinning? Or is she just doing something that's at cross purposes with his selfish agenda? Let's say during that day, he's watching the games, and, and he hears two of his children arguing in the next room. He just kind of blows it off, but eventually their arguing gets so loud that he can't hear the TV. And so now he intervenes and he yells at his kids and he's upset with them. Is he upset because they're not loving one another and they're disregarding the command of God to love one another and they're being selfish? Or is his anger more because they have done something at cross purposes with his selfish agenda? Imagine a mom who's in public. She prides herself in being a great parent. Everyone looks up to her as being a great model mom and her kids in public start misbehaving and the mom gets upset. Is she upset uh, because they're sinning even though in fact they are sinning or is she more upset because they're ruining her reputation as a good mom and they therefore are doing something at cross purposes with her selfish agenda. Imagine driving on the freeway. This is purely hypothetical. (laughs) Just driving on the freeway and tooling along at 65 miles an hour and somebody cuts in front of you and makes you slow down by 10 miles per hour. (gasps) And you're upset. Are you upset because a sin has been committed? Or are you upset Because someone has done something at cross purposes with your desire to drive on the freeway without having to slow down by 10 miles per hour. Jesus, if he's sitting in the car with you, would say, what are you so upset about? I didn't die for your right to drive in an uninterrupted way. I didn't die for that. Uh, And yet, there are so many things that we value And we get angry about when they're threatened or violated. And it's all stuff that Jesus didn't die for. One of my pet peeves on the road is having someone tail me too closely. I hate that. There have been times, I hate to admit, uh, that I've, I've hit my brakes when someone is following me too closely on the freeway. That irritates me. But Jesus would say, I didn't, I didn't die for the right. You're right to have people 30 yards off your bumper. I didn't, I didn't die for that. Um, we get so petty and so selfish because we lose sight of the fact 
that we've been purchased by God through the death of Christ and therefore we're owned and operated by him and when he purchased us he purchased all of our rights and by the way in purchasing us he also uh, in purchasing our rights whenever we're wronged that's against him because we're his property he'll duly note that and he'll take care of that that's his that's why he says beloved vengeance justice is mine we can release that to him because we know that we're loved and we're purchased and owned and operated uh, by him. May God help us, not just when we're wrong, but to get up in the morning and say, God, you have every right and my permission because I'm your property, owned and operated by you, to rearrange my life in any way that you see fit for my good and for your glory. And if today holds situations where I'm going to be wronged, I know that you only have allowed those wrongs to be committed because they will serve your gospel purposes in me and through me and elicit something from me that will serve to glorify your name before others and before the principalities and powers. Imagine going into each day with that kind of devotion to Christ and awareness that we are not our own. Uh, You say, man, that just sounds hard to do. I'll tell you something even harder. Live as if you own yourself. That's so exhausting. And that's why we get angry and so petty and we consume so much energy. This is the liberating way to live, okay? And we learn to live that way at the foot of the cross. Now, session three. Um, We'll come here to the seventh thought that we can think at the foot of the cross. This is something that um, uh, that I would just highly commend to all of you to not just think about today, but to spend the next uh, however long really pondering what this is saying. This is something about forgiveness that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's absolutely true, and we learn this to be true at the foot of the cross. Standing at the foot of the cross, we observe something profound about the true nature of forgiveness, and that is this. Thought number seven, forgiveness is suffering. Forgiveness is suffering. Forgiveness is death. Forgiveness is crucifixion. Forgiveness is suffering. Forgiveness is death. Forgiveness is crucifixion. If you're thinking about forgiving, you see in the Bible that you're told to forgive and you're like, you know, I'm really thinking about this idea. I I think I really want to forgive, but I wonder what it's going to feel like to forgive. God points to the cross and says, this is what you're in for. Forgiveness is crucifixion. It is death and it is suffering. You know, there are people who ask, and Timothy Keller addresses this in his book, The Reason for God. They ask the question, you know, why, why couldn't God have just forgiven the world of, you know, people of their sins and just kind of waved a wand and pronounced them all forgiven? Couldn't he have done that? Why did he have to have his son get nailed to a cross and bleed and die in order to forgive us of our sins? Keller rightly says that people who would ask this kind of question clearly don't understand the true nature 
of forgiveness. And they probably have never had to forgive anybody truly and deeply of any significant wrong. Look at what Keller says. Everyone who forgives goes through a death and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. Forgiveness is costly suffering. Forgiveness at first always feels far worse than bitterness. Just mark that. You know, we got to be careful that we're not naive. We tell people, just forgive and you'll, you'll be liberated and free. Ultimately, it does lead to that, but initially, forgiveness always feels worse than bitterness. That's why people choose bitterness. Look at this. Forgiveness means refusing to make them, the offender, pay for what they did, which means you have to pay it. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all of your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly, and many people would say it feels like a kind of death. That is forgiveness. You experience the original hurt, and then you have the desire for justice, but you're not going to deliver that, which means you have to absorb that retaliation in your person, and whatever the cost of the injury that's been inflicted upon you, you have to absorb that in your person. At the cross, God is showing you and me what forgiveness looks like. When God invites you to forgive, he's inviting you into a crucifixion experience. Ken Sandy says it this way, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, the debt doesn't simply disappear. Instead, you absorb the liability that someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of the other person's sins and you release that person from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Christ accomplished on Calvary. Imagine, for example, that I'm over at your house and I get mad at you and I'm, I storm out of the house and I, in a hurry, back out of your driveway and I in the process, damage this uh, really nice, expensive retaining wall that you have right along the length of your driveway. And let's just say I do $5,000 worth of damage. And I see that I did the damage and I just take off. I'm not even going to deal with it. And you come out and you see that. And then let's, let's say that you've been here at this conference and you're like, you know what, I've been learning about forgiveness. I'm going to forgive Milton for what he did. I'm going to absorb the debt in my own person. And so you inform me of that. You forgive. You forgive me for what I did and the damage that I caused. You go to bed that night and you get up the next morning and you're like, man, I got to deal with this wall now. I got to get estimates. We got to get it repaired. There's going to be at least $5,000 spent on repairing this wall. 
And you, you go out of your house and you approach the wall and lo and behold, the wall is completely repaired. There's no damage anywhere. And you say to your wife, I, look at this wall. There's no damage. It's been fixed. I love this forgiveness business. Because when I forgive, it just, the debt just disappears. It goes away. Is that what would happen? No, it's still damaged. And you still have to invest time in getting estimates and overseeing the project. And you have to absorb in your own person the cost to fix the damage that I inflicted. That's the essence of forgiveness on so many levels. When you forgive a debt, the debt doesn't disappear. It's still there. You have to absorb that debt. This is painful. Um, And so when, when God calls us into forgiveness, he's not calling us into a pleasant experience. He's calling us to a crucifixion, death. Death to the part of us that feels entitled to better treatment that we have received. Death to that part of us that wants to retaliate. Death to that part of us that wants the offender to pay what they owe to us as a result of the sins that they have committed uh, against us. We die when we forgive. You'll see on the notes here, guys, in so many conflict situations, here's, here's what I think God is often looking for. He's just looking for one person. Just in this conflict, just give me one person who's willing to die. Who's willing to die. So many times in conflict situations, we'll do some right things that on the surface seem to make for peace, but really all we're doing is we're just doing enough so that the record will show that we did this. And we're merely seeking to maintain the moral high ground. And we'll do some things in conflict situations that make for peace, but what we are afraid of is dying. We'll do anything short of dying. But in a conflict situation, if one person would just step forward and say, I'm willing to get crucified in this situation. I'm willing to die. God says, I can use that. I can use that. So understand this about forgiveness, that forgiveness is suffering. It is death. It is uh, crucifixion. And we need to be willing to embrace that dying. And that leads to an eighth thought that we can think at the foot of the cross. And this is what gives us the freedom to die, the death of forgiveness. And that is that death isn't so bad after all. Actually, it's the beginning of life. When Jesus is dying, we actually see, as it were, according to the writer of Hebrews, we'll notice as we're looking at him on the cross, we see him staring at something. And we're like, what is that? What is he He's locked in on something, and you read Hebrews 12, and you realize that what he's staring at is the joy that is set before him. There's a joy set before him that that is making him willing to die. It's a joy that's on the other side of his dying, and it is a joy that is set before him on the other side of his dying that is so phenomenal and so great 
that he literally despised the shame, despised his suffering. In other words, he thought little of his suffering in comparison to the magnitude of the joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross. And so we observe at the foot of the cross that, yeah, Christ dies here, but this is not the end. In fact, it is just the beginning of the story. And so I learn at the foot of the cross that death isn't so bad. Death is not something to fear It's actually the beginning, the precursor to life. Jesus says, he who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Standing in the shadow of the cross in John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it goes into the ground, takes root, springs forth and bears much fruit. He's telling his disciples, I'm about to die here, but on the other side of my dying is incredible life and fruitfulness. And so when we're faced with painful circumstances where we know we're called to forgive and we're being invited into this crucifixion experience, that's something that we recoil from. We don't want to go through that. We're so afraid to experience these layers of dying. It's the last thing we want to go through. But you know what? God says there's a joy set before you on the other side of dying. Your dying in this situation is so not the end. It's actually a precursor. It's an entry point into deeper layers of life beyond which you have experienced before. Paul was locked into this. He viewed the gospel motif of the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ as not just the blueprint for what Christ did, but as the blueprint for his own life. He says in Philippians 10, I want to know him And we all say, amen, Paul, we're with you. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we say, amen, Paul, we feel the same way. Paul says, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And we say, you go, Paul, (laughs) as we motion for him to go on ahead of us. And then Paul says, I want to be made conformed to his death. And suddenly, we stand back and realize the massive distance between us and this lunatic apostle who was clued into something that we're not clued into. Paul had a taste of this on his tongue. He knew that as I experienced deeper layers of dying, there are deeper layers of experience of the resurrection power and life of the Lord Jesus Christ on the other side of that. There have been times in my life where I've been the opposite of everything I'm talking about in these sessions, and then there have been times in my life where I've, I've literally just had to die this painful death of forgiveness, and it felt like crucifixion. But on the other end of that was just this deeper layer of spiritual power and spiritual life and vitality and intimacy with God beyond what I had known before. And once I had come out through that and was experiencing the liveliness of all of that, I, 
I had that taste on my tongue, and it's like, who else can I forgive? How else can I die? Because I get excited about that dying when I realize that that's just an entry point to life. In the topsy-turvy world of the gospel, death is the gateway to life. And so we should not fear death. From the gospel primer, I talk about this. And listen, we'll just read this. Thankfully, the gospel teaches me that dying is not an end but a beginning. For Christ took up his cross and died... Uh, God raised him from the dead, exalted him to the highest heaven, and drew him into his bosom. These facts surrounding Christ's resurrection stand as proof positive that God will not leave me for dead, but will raise me similarly if I would only allow myself to die. Indeed, on the other side of each layer of dying lie experiences of a life with God that are far richer, far higher, and far more intimate than anything I would have otherwise known." In God's economy, death is the way to life. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he shall find it. Indeed, the more conformable I am made to the death of Christ, the more I experience freedom from sin and taste the power of the resurrection of Jesus himself. The path to such power is paved with many dyings, and each stage of resurrection is achieved with each incident of dying to myself and reckoning myself dead to sin. The more I contemplate the gospel, the more I understand that this word of the cross stands as a blueprint for my own life story. The death that Christ died is the death to which I also am called, and the death to which I am called is my entry point to union with Christ and life at its fullest. So come what may, I'll let no one take this death from me. Imagine if if I always had that mindset, if we always had that mindset, and every time In this broken world, somebody wrongs you and sins against you and you're called to forgive them. That is an invitation to experience something that is conformable to the death of Christ. And thus, to go deeper in your experience of the life on the other side of that. The liberty on the other side of that. As you experience the resurrection life of Jesus in deeper and deeper ways. Does that make sense? Okay, Um, so we've done the 360 around the foot of the cross, and um, hopefully uh, as you've done that or you've helped someone else do that, uh, you and or they are at a point where they are ready and disposed to forgive. I do want to throw a word of caution at you guys, and that's what's in the notes The idea of getting to the place of forgiveness can be abused. Um, There, you know, it can maybe give you the impression that it just takes a while to get to the place of forgiveness. And, And you know you're supposed to forgive someone and people may ask you, have you forgiven them yet? And you say, no, but I'm on a journey toward forgiveness. Um, And you've been on that journey for two years now and you still haven't forgiven We want to be real careful uh, with that. In her book, Choosing Forgiveness, Nancy Lee DeMoss talks about one of the myths of forgiveness, and I love this. Look at what she says. There's a myth that keeps many people from experiencing the reality and blessings of forgiveness in their lives, 
And that is this, that forgiveness requires a long, drawn-out process. I've heard people say, I'm moving toward forgiveness, sometimes even after years of counseling and therapy. There's no question that for some people, coming to grips with the awful offenses they've been forced to endure can be a long and arduous journey. The road just to get to the place where forgiveness is barely palatable is often a story in itself. But I'll just say this from experience. I've watched believers working their way toward forgiveness for years and years and never getting there. In fact, I might even go so far as to say that when forgiveness is seen primarily as a work in progress, it seldom becomes a work in practice. The choice to forgive does not have to involve a long extended process any more than God's forgiveness of us is a slow-moving wait-and-see, not-till-I'm-good-and-ready series of events and checkpoints. By God's grace, you can choose to forgive in a moment of time to, le- to the level of your understanding at that point. And though much more may be required of you down the line, the reality of being released from the prison of your own forgiveness can happen today, this moment. Um, notice that she's okay with the language of getting to the place of forgiveness, but her concern is that you just don't take forever in getting there and feel justified in the length of that journey to the place of forgiveness. Um, that's why we're talking about a 360 uh, around the cross, going to the foot of the cross, because that's, that's the better path than sitting around and waiting for God to somehow get you to a place of forgiveness. No, go to the cross, and that's an active step that you can take that God can then use to transport you to the place of forgiveness. One other wrong impression that one can get from the language here is that, you know, you got to do this 360 around the cross, and then, um, you know, hopefully by then all of your emotions will be in alignment and every fiber of your being will want to forgive. Don't wait around for that. Um, But here's the deal. Will this journey to the foot of the cross and around the cross get you to a place where when you are done, Jesus would say, is there any part of you, is there any part of you, even the size of a mustard seed, that is ready to forgive now? And you may say, you know what, there's so many things in me screaming against forgiving, but yes, Jesus, there's... There's a mustard seed size desire within me to grant forgiveness. Jesus would say, that's all I need. That's all I need. And you may say, but my emotions disagree. And Jesus would say, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agree with your decision to forgive, who cares what your emotions say? Amen? And so that's all we're talking about is getting to this place to where you are disposed to forgive, you're ready to make that decision, even if all of your emotions are not in full alignment. And this journey around the cross also serves to give shape to your forgiveness. A lot of times we forgive, but we're not forgiving in a way that's really shaped by the cross. And so there's defects in our forgiveness. So this journey to and around the cross also helps to make sure that our forgiveness is delivered in the form and the shape that it should come in and is as defect-free as possible. But that brings us to step two, and step two, three, and four are going to move much uh, more quickly. At some point, 
You know, you make this journey to the place of forgiveness, but at some point you got to call it in, you got to lock it in, you got to make the choice to forgive. And that is step two choose to forgive. Choose to uh, forgive. And when you choose to forgive, let me just give you some guidelines here. We'll see how far we can, uh, we can get in working through these. When you do actually execute forgiveness, uh, letter A, we should choose to forgive in the context of prayer. In the context of prayer. We don't really think about this a whole lot, but you know the, the context in which you want to grant forgiveness officially to people is in the context of prayer. That's where you do forgiveness, uh, technically. In the Lord's Prayer, Luke eleven four, 4, uh, Jesus says, say this, uh, as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us, forgive us as we are, present tense, right now forgiving everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus is teaching us that in the context of your praying, you grant forgiveness. You say to God, I am forgiving those who've sinned against me and who are indebted to me. Forgiveness is something you officially do when God is in the room. More accurately, forgiveness is something you do in God's room, in the throne room. Be official about your forgiveness. Sometimes someone wrongs us and we're really angry. We go to bed that night, we wake up the next morning and we're not quite so angry. And we just sort of think, well, I, you know, I, I think I probably forgave them. But you never made that decision. There was never a transaction of handing that over to the Lord and forgiving that person from your heart. What you need to do is to go in the presence of God, in the context of prayer, and officially Forgive that person. In Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Again, teaching us that forgiveness or that prayer is the context in which we grant forgiveness. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Your prayer time before God's throne is the time to be asking yourself, is there anyone that sinned against me? And if so, I want right now in the presence of God to forgive them from my heart. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 12, he says, as we forgive our debtors. That's the language of prayer. Guys, make verbalizing your forgiveness of others a normative part of your prayer life. Um, you know, there are certain acrostics and things that people do to remember what they need to do in their prayer. I need to do adoration and then confession and then thanksgiving and then supplication. Put an F in there somewhere because it should be our habit that when we go to God in prayer that we, we think about those who've wronged us and we celebrate God's grace towards us and how he's forgiven us. And then in the context of prayer, we're an imitator of God. And we're saying, God, so-and-so has wronged me and I forgive them for what they have done. And we're doing that in his presence in the context of prayer. Don't be fuzzy about forgiveness. Articulate your forgiveness in prayer in the presence of God. Also, letter B, we should choose to forgive others in a way that is shaped by God's forgiveness of us. In Ephesians 4, 
through chapter 5, verse 1, um, Paul says, Be forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you, and be imitators of God as beloved children. So prayer is the time to reflect upon the forgiveness that God has shown to us and then to turn toward those who've wronged us and, and experience the pleasure of being like him. You're never more like God than when you're giving forgiveness to other people. And you get to do that in prayer. In one moment, you're receiving God's grace and thanking him for his forgiveness. In the next moment, you are turning toward those who've wronged you in the context of prayer. And you are being like God in extending forgiveness to them in a way that's shaped by the gospel. Um, Letter C, we should choose to forgive others as a means of shaping our own experience of God's forgiveness of us. We should forgive others as a means of shaping our own experience of God's forgiveness of us. We don't have the time to unpack this, but it is interesting. You know, we're told in Ephesians, forgive the way you've been forgiven, right? But in the Lord's Prayer... Uh, In Luke 11 and Matthew 6, it seems like that gets reversed, where in Luke 11, we say, forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he goes on to say, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If you don't forgive other people, God will not forgive you. Whatever your theology is, guys, you need to stick this in your theology somewhere. If you do not forgive other people of their sins against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. That's alarming. What is Jesus saying? Uh, He's not saying here that if you fail to forgive someone and then you turn around and in true, genuine humility and brokenness, you come to God and say, God, I've sinned. Will you forgive me of my sins? And the Father looks at you in your genuine brokenness and says, nope, I'm not going to forgive you because you didn't forgive this person over here two years ago. That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is if you refuse to forgive somebody, That forgiveness changes you. It hardens you. Why did you refuse to forgive that person? It's because you view yourself as morally superior to them. You're up here and they're down here. And you view their sins against you um, as bigger than your sins against God. You're in a place of moral superiority and of pride, of bitterness and anger and a refusal to forgive, and that hardens you and thus renders you incapable of experiencing the true genuine brokenness that's needed to come to God and seek genuine forgiveness from God, and thus you don't receive it. I hope that's clear. Um, The essence of what is being said here is if you don't forgive other people, you can't compartmentalize that bitterness and not be changed by it. A refusal to forgive someone of their sins against you puts you in a place where it's impossible for you to actually genuinely repent of your own sins and experience the brokenness necessary 
for you to experience God's grace in the deepest of ways. Nancy Lee DeMoss says the scripture affirms what our own experience confirms, a clear connection between our willingness to extend forgiveness to others and our ability to appropriate and experience God's forgiveness for our sins. If we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, we will not be forgiven by God. If we continue on in that way, then we will not go to heaven because heaven is the dwelling place of forgiving people. And you're like, or someone may may be like, man, that's a bummer. I won't get to heaven. I would say to someone like that is, why would you even want to go to heaven? If heaven is the place where you have to let all this go and you can't be bitter and hold a grudge there, why would you want to go to a place like that? A refusal to forgive, what it does is it hardens you and renders you incapable of genuine repentance in any area of your life and thus able to experience God's grace. Remember years ago, we had a a lady come to our church who, a, a family, and the wife was, we came to discover, was an exceptionally bitter woman. And she was very bitter against the leadership and a number of people at her former church, and she was wanting to join our church. And so as I was meeting with this woman, I was like, uh, I'm thinking, I do not want her joining our church with all of this mess and all of this bitterness because it's going to be a matter of time before she's angry with us. So we told her, you know, we we need you to go back and we need you to deal with these uh, issues and we need you to grant forgiveness. And after really pushing for that at length, this woman finally said, I'm not going to forgive them. I don't want to forgive them. And she kind of slapped her thigh and said, you're going to have to convince me to forgive them. And I said, okay, uh, let me give you three reasons to forgive. Number one... Because if you're a genuine Christian, God has forgiven you of your sins. And that's amazing grace. And how can you receive that forgiveness and not pass it on to those who have wronged you? I said reason number two, you should forgive them because your anger that you have against them is actually destroying you and rendering you an exceptionally ugly person. Walking around with anger in your heart is the equivalent of walking around with gasoline in a styrofoam cup. Anger destroys its container always. It may be slow, but it always eventually destroys its container. I said that's the second reason. The third reason, and I swallowed hard, I said if you do not forgive these people and you live the rest of your life unrepentant, in your refusal to forgive these people, you just might burn in hell forever because you will thus be rendered hardened and unable to truly repent of your own sins and thus experience God's grace. Well, um, she never did forgive and they attended our church for a number of years and sure enough, Before long, she was angry at a number of people in our church. And the last meeting that I had with her and her husband, uh, what she said was laced with profanity and even threw a cup across the desk uh, toward me in that meeting. That's the last time that I saw her. 
because she never, she never learned the art and the brokenness of forgiveness. This woman's story is not finished. I pray that God's grace will prevail in her life. But I've noticed even in my own life, and I'll share this and then we'll shut it down for right now, that um, there are times where I just notice that I'm distant from the Lord and I'm not, there's the free flow of God's grace isn't really happening within me. And I'll stop and I'll ask why. And sometimes the reason that that's being experienced by me is because there's someone that I'm angry against. And when I recognize that and then grant forgiveness to that person, what it does is it frees up the flow of grace. I'm passing on God's grace to that person, and now God's grace is flowing freely in me again. When you refuse as a genuine believer to give grace to somebody else, you get backed up, and we get cranky when we get backed up with the grace of God. We experience God's grace most richly when it's passing through us to other people. Amen? And when you give grace to others, it actually serves to deepen your capacity to experience God's grace towards you.